Uh, and today we land this uh, Breaking Point series. And so I want to begin just with a conversation, a pleasant conversation, a conversation about suffering, a conversation about suffering. So Saturday morning, you're in your vehicle, you're driving to breakfast. And they're on the bike trail. As you're driving along, you pass. There's these three women running together. They're, they're not running fast, just kind of chugging along. And you see them, and you just kind of registers, and you take note. And you go, and you enjoy a long, leisurely breakfast. And then you're driving home, and you look over, and there are three women running on the bike trail, but in the opposite direction. And you just do a double take, and you go, I think those are the same three women that I saw 90 minutes ago. Not running fast, just kind of chugging along. And it's then that you notice little hip belts with uh, water bottles, and you guess that those women are in marathon training. And of course, then you ask the question that all non-runners ask. What kind of mental disorder would motivate someone <laughs> to do such a thing? And, and, and the answer is, uh, particularly for a first marathon, there is an incredible amount of uh, just personal gratification in training and then completing a 26.2 mile race, crossing the finish line, whatever your time, and getting that finisher's medal. See, here's the deal. We embrace discomfort if we think there's a point to it. We embrace discomfort if there's a purpose. It's the suffering that feels pointless it's really a problem. And listen, there are people that would never do long road races who embrace a different type of discomfort. Sitting in a very small chair for an international flight, a 12-hour international flight, sometimes sandwiched between two other people. Why would anyone expose themselves to that discomfort? 12 hours of discomfort. And the answer is, if you want to explore Thailand, or if you want to visit South Africa, that might be the price tag. Stuffed into a small chair for 12-hour seat, we endure the flight to enjoy the country. See. We endure, we embrace suffering when it has a purpose. And some of you, you'll be scrolling through some Netflix uh, series, and you'll happen on a series about uh, Navy SEALs and uh, becoming a Navy SEAL, and you realize those people sign up for that. They try to get into the program and go through the torture of Navy SEAL training. Why? Why? Uh, in order to one day be able to say, I am a Navy SEAL. I was a Navy SEAL in order to make it into this elite group. Uh, we embrace suffering when, when there's a point to it. We embrace suffering when there's a purpose. Of course, the, 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 the biggest illustration are those who experience labor and delivery. Uh, labor and delivery in order to hold this child. And I fully comprehend the pain of labor, labor and delivery because I've watched it three times. 
Just kidding, just kidding. There's a child, you see, we, we embrace discomfort, we embrace suffering when there's a purpose. It's, it's that other kind. It's suffering where we go, what's the sense? What's the point? What good could possibly come out of this? That is the suffering. It's hard to endure. And that's the kind of suffering we witness as we open our Bibles today to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. When you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel is adrift. In fact, it's not really a nation. It's a loose confederation of tribes. 1 Samuel occurs after, at the very end of a time we call the time of the judges, but before the time of the kings of Israel. And right out of the gate, I mean verse 2 of this book, we're exposed to a family trauma, family drama, and deep emotional suffering. I mean, one, two verses in, uh, there's a guy by the name of Elkanah. He's the husband, and you read this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Just, just, just understand, this is how the book opens. One dude married to two women. Okay, I bet that went well. <laughs> uh, next sentence, Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Do you feel a storm blowing in? Now, you wouldn't find this in your Bible, but there's a Jewish tradition that said that uh, Elkanah married Hannah. And then they wait through like 10 years of infertility. And after 10 years of being childless, Elkanah marries a second wife, Penina, in order to produce offspring, in, in order to keep his family tree going, in order to produce an heir. Uh, again, may or may not have happened, but that is the Jewish tradition about how this unfolded. All is not well in the household of Elkanah. Hannah, the childless one, she will find herself harassed. She will find herself helpless. And she will find herself miserable. It's one of those stories that opens up for us and we just go, what good could possibly come out of this? That's the driver behind the story. What pointless emotional misery, what good could possibly come out of this? And let's just be frank, we didn't need the story of Hannah to have to ask that question in our lives. What good could possibly come out of this? They were married at age 25, divorced at age 27. Disappointed, disillusioned. What good could possibly come out of this? The third miscarriage. Still waiting to take home child number one. Just what good could possibly come out of this? There's been an accident, and family members are gathered day after day in the family waiting room near the intensive care unit, and things are not looking good. See, there's the kind of suffering that seems to have purpose to it, and there's the other kind 
It just feels so pointless where you go, what good could possibly come out of this? And today, as we follow the Elkanah family, and particularly as we laser in on Hannah, the childless one, we are going to discover that God is powerfully at work in her suffering. There is a point and purpose to her suffering. And my friends, I believe that there is a purpose to yours, even if we have no clue what it might be. So we're going to follow the story of Hannah. We're going to unfold it in four parts today. And part one, let's just say it, part one is just Hannah's misery. Hannah's misery. Now, the story doesn't really unfold in their village. The story unfolds at a religious location. It's called Shiloh. Uh, and it's where this thing was here. It says the, the, the tabernacle. Now, the King Solomon's temple had not been built yet. And the tabernacle was kind of this portable worship center. They first built it in the desert. They exit Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're traveling to the land of promise. And because they're moving from place to place, they need to kind of have a portable worship center. Uh, and then when they came to Canaan and set up in Canaan, they still had, but they, you know, so it was a semi-portable semi worship center. Temple hasn't been built yet. But... Families would go to the tabernacle, this thing called the tabernacle. Uh, Elkanah is going there with his family once a year. And Israel's feasts were based on the agricultural cycle. So you would get your crops in. You would go to the tabernacle to give thanks to the Lord for your crops, worship the Lord there, and then go back home. It was a time of feasting. It was a festival time. And this is when you would go to give thanks and you would uh, participate in this feast and participate in this festival. And it is exactly at this moment that Penina, with all of her children, that she chooses to needle Hannah and irritate Hannah and every year bring Hannah to the point of tears. Elkanah, the husband, he goes and offers a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and he takes the food and he comes and distributes it to his family. He gives portions to Penina and all of Penina's kids, but <laughs> Hannah's portion size is like Double. Why? Because he loves her so much and he knows about her inner turmoil and inner suffering. Uh, check it out. Verse 4, we find these words. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. He's got a bunch of kids. But, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion, twice as much, because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Now, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, that's Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this, she did that? No, she did that year after year after year. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. You realize what's happening here? This what was to have been the most joyful time of year, which was to be the happiest time of year, this is the time Penina takes every year to needle her, to irritate her, to provoke her, to push all her buttons until finally Hannah can't even eat anything and she just breaks down in a puddle of tears. This, my friends, is a breaking point. And it happened around our term holidays, them festival, us holidays. You know, uh, 
I've heard from people again and again over the years, holidays are hard. A couple's married 46 years, the husband dies or the wife dies, this is the first Christmas season. You don't even remember not, have, not being with them for Christmas. Just how you doing? Yeah, you know, holidays are hard. The, the, the first Christmas, New Year's, after uh, separation and a divorce that you didn't want, you were in a house, now you're in an apartment. I would call it furnished. It's, it's barely furnished. Holding it together over the holidays is a challenge. And for those without a, any kind of traumatic family event, just those of you who find yourself alone for some reason, this aloneness, this sense of aloneness seems to get amplified over Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And you, you turn on your radio, and there it is. It's the hap, happiest season of all. And you go, turn it off. Not for me, it's not. Holidays can be hard. But listen, Penina is making them hard. This is the time that she picks to make Hannah miserable, harassed, helpless, and miserable. And I'm just asking, where's the dude? I mean, Elkanah, man, step up, do something, bring some comfort to your dear wife in her sorrow. He tries. I love this. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Yes, gentlemen, right there. One more chapter in the annals of men saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> I am so glad this made it into the story. The dude's trying. He really is. And I think Hannah's response was, <laughs> no. <laughs> am I not better to you than 10 sons? I want you to come to grips with something here. Uh, the Bible does not sugarcoat suffering. Hannah's, emotionally suffering. Hannah's emotional suffering is set before us with description after description after description after description. Her suffering is not minimized. Her suffering is not downplayed at all. These are some of the expressions that are used, some of the terms. It says she's downcast. It says she's deeply troubled. It says she was in deep anguish. It says that she's miserable. And I left out some. That's just a sampling. It's kind of like, okay, here it is, emotional misery. There's an expression some of you saw. I skipped over it. I skipped over it momentarily, but I don't want to gloss over it. It's this troubling expression here. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. It says it twice, once in verse 5 and one in verse, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, Penina, provokes her every single year. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. What is not hidden from us here, what is exposed to us here, is that Hannah's misery is something that God permitted. And this can be troubling. That Hannah's misery is something God allowed. 
this can mess with us, really mess with us. If God is good, and if he's like capable and competent, then why in the world does he allow something like that? Now, if he's not good or if he's not capable or powerful, then that's a different thing. But if he's the, like the God God of the Bible, he's good and loving and competent and powerful and suffering he permits, what do you do with that? And I, I just know that sometimes this is treated as a philosophical question. If God is loving and if God is powerful, then how can pain exist? But for many of us, this is not a philosophical quandary. This is a deep problem of the heart. If God loves me and if he's capable, then why did he allow that? So I don't want to gloss over it. Let's hit it head on. And I just want to hit it as head on as I can with a, a, a personal a traumatic story, uh, the most traumatic story from my life. Now, uh, if you're around Ada Bible Church for any length of time, you will hear me mention that I lost my mom when I was 12 years old. I mentioned it at least twice a year, and I, I mentioned it last, uh, last weekend. It's, it's hard not to mention it in talking about my childhood because it, this traumatic event of losing my mom in an accident set in motion so many other things that came after that moves, remarriages, uh, et cetera. So uh, this is how my mom died. Um, mom and dad driving cross-country at night, family van, my dad was usually the driver. He needed to sleep for a couple hours. I think it was something like 2 o'clock in the morning. Mom was driving. We think she fell asleep at the wheel. Car starts to go toward the shoulder, overcorrects, van flips. Mom dies, dad lives. Uh, my father, a small church pastor, my mom and dad had five children at the time. My sister was 13, I was 12, younger brothers, nine, four, and two months old. The two-month-old lived through the accident without a car seat. Welcome to 1974. Now, uh, if he's God, he could have kept my mom awake. And he didn't. <laughs> and he didn't. See, here's the question before the house. The question before the house is this. Will you trust a God you do not understand? Can you trust a God who mystifies you? What if he is powerfully loving? And what if he allows, what if he permits tragedy in our lives? And what if he is at work to tell a much longer story? What if he is at work to bring about unspeakable good out of unspeakable bad? How can you approach a God that allows tragedy? Well, approaching God is precisely what Hannah does. Part one is Hannah's misery. Part two is Hannah's prayer. We see Hannah move toward God and pour out her heart to God, the very God that she believes has permitted her childlessness, had permitted her infertility. Hannah's prayer. 
Now, I just want to remind you of the setting again because it's, it's significant here. It's, it's the tabernacle. Well, what's important about that? The tabernacle represented the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is in the back room of the tabernacle. So as Hannah stands up in one of her meltdowns and walks toward the tabernacle and begins to pray, she is approaching what was seen as the presence of the God of Israel. And as she approaches the gate, there's a dude sitting there. The guy's name is Eli. He's the main priest. So he's sitting by the door and she comes to the door and she begins to pray. And we're told of the emotional suffering that she's experiencing as she begins to pray. Uh, verse 10 of this story says, uh, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. This is a blubbery prayer. This is a slobbery prayer. She's, she's, what she's doing is she's pouring out her heart to God. She's pouring out her heart. That's the expression she will use later in the story. It's like she's coming with all her emotional fatigue and all her frustration, and she is emptying her heart. She's pouring out her heart to God. This is not the only time in our Bible that we see this expression of pouring out your spirit, pouring out your heart to God. It comes up in the Psalms, the songbook of the Jewish people. Uh, Psalm 142 would say this, I pour out, there it is, I pour out before him my what? My complaint, I can't believe this is going. I pour out my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. And then there's Psalm 62. Trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Now, th this is not a neat prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I have some concerns. There's something here that just pouring out your heart to God. His, I am tired, I am so tired, I am beyond exhausted. I am so disappointed, I'm disappointed with people, I'm disappointed with politics, I'm becoming cynical, and I don't want to become a professional cynic. And that's what I'm becoming. I'm tired of waiting. I can't believe how long I've been sitting here in this waiting room. I hear the door open. I see you call other people's names. And here I sit and I sit and I sit and I feel forgotten. Will you please remember me? Now that's pouring out your heart to God. She's pouring out her heart to God. And as she's pouring out her heart to God, her lips are moving, but you can't hear her words, it's like she's praying from her heart. Eli's sitting there. He's looking over. He can't hear anything. But he just sees her mouth move. See, just woman, clearly a mess. And then, and then she asks for something, and then she promises something. She asks God for something, standing right there at the entrance of the tabernacle, that place that represents, she's like moving toward the presence of God. She asks for something, and she promises something. Is what she asks. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, she believes he's powerful and capable. If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, she's asking for a baby boy. Then, then what? If you only give me a son, then, then I will forgive Penina for all the lousy things she did and said. 
Then when I get back home to my village, I will volunteer more in the community. Then what? If you give me a son, then what? This is how the verse ends. Then I will... Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of my life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. What's up with the haircut thing? Look it up later. There's something called a Nazarite vow. You take this kind of vow to God, and then your hair would lengthen during the time of the vow and its completion. But do you realize what she's saying here? If you give me a son, I'm going to give him back. This son will not just be my son. This son will become your son. Give me a son, but not so this son can bless me. I want this son to be a blessing to you. You see, you would think if I had a son, then he would serve me in my old age. No, this son will serve you, God, all the days of his life. She asks for something, and she promises something. If you give me what I want more than anything else in the world, I will return him to you. I will give him back. And this whole time, her lips are moving, and no words are coming out. And Eli, the, the head priest, he's looking over. You know what he thinks? He thinks she's drunk. Seriously, verse 13, this is what we have. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. And she looks over and goes, oh, I'm not drunk. It's, it's not liquor that has been pouring into me. It's my pain that is pouring out of me. I'm pouring out my heart to God. And then Eli kind of throws this blessing her way. It's kind of like, well, may God give you whatever you've been asking for. Verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. I don't think Eli has a clue what she's been asking God for. Remember, he sees her lips moving. He hasn't heard a word of her prayer. He just goes, may God give you what you've been asking for, what you've been pleading for, what you've been begging for, may God give you. May the God of Israel bless you with what you've been asking for. And then something happens inside Hannah. Verse 18 tells us this, then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. She gets up, she goes, she sits down at the feast, she has something to eat, and her chin lifts. The remarkable thing about this story is that she seems to come to some emotional composure before she has resolution, before a pregnancy and before a child. And my friends, sometimes this happens. There, there can be at times, a peace, a peace that comes with the pouring, where you unburden your heart to God and you're able to walk away over and you feel lifted because it's out, because it's between you, because it's been poured out. Hannah goes, she sits down, she has something to eat, and her chin lifts. She's no longer downcast. It's part two of the story, Hannah's prayer. Part three of the story, Hannah's promise. She asked God for something, and she made a promise. Story, the narrator, the narrator very tenderly says, they went home, and Elkanah made love to his wife, and she conceived, and she gives birth to a son, and Hannah gives him the name Samuel, and it means God heard, God has heard me. 
And the time rolls around for a festival, and Elkanah goes, hey, let's go. And Hannah goes, yeah, no, I'm not going this year. And I don't think I'm going next year, and I don't think I'm going to the festival the following year. And if you're the husband, you go, well, what's up with this? Hannah says this, uh, check out verse 22. Uh, Hannah says, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Now, cultural technicality here is that um, weaning means when you're no longer breastfeeding uh, a child, when you're no longer nursing a child. And in, in our culture, we stop nursing way before they stop nursing in their culture. Uh, you'd stop nursing when a child was like three or four years old. Different day, different land, different place, different culture. And so she's basically saying, no, I'm going to raise him here in our house until he's like three or four, and then I'm going to take him, and I'm going to drop him off at the tabernacle to serve there for the rest of his life. Watch him grow from infancy to toddler, and now... The festival has rolled around, and they're on their way there again. They offer their sacrifices. They give their gifts. And then Elkanah, Hannah, and this little kid, they walk up to Eli the priest, and Hannah goes, do you remember me? <laughs> remember what, that woman that was blubbering here a few years before? Check out the conversation. Uh, pardon me, my Lord. <laughs> pardon me. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying, praying to the Lord. I don't think he even knows what she asked for. And she says, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. She drops him off. She goes back home. Very tender part of the story. Each year while they're separated, she makes this little robe for him. And then at the festival goes and gives it to him. And the robes get larger and larger and larger as Samuel begins to grow. Does this trouble you at all? Okay, Chris and I, we have five grandkids. We happen to be attached to them. Uh, this past Monday, breakfast, uh, grandpa date, walk with uh, granddaughter uh, Mia to go get donuts. Now, Mia is like three, just turned four, big expressions, big face, big gestures, big personality, big everything. Uh, I wish I had a picture. Oh, but I do. That's Mia. <laughs> That's Mia. Now, um, if we visited my son and his wife, and they informed us that they had just dropped her off at some kind of religious order and would be visiting her one time a year, I think we might protest. That's what Hannah does, and this is usually where the story ends. Hannah can't have children. She says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back. She has a son. She brings him back. Samuel is given to the Lord for the work of the Lord. End of story. No, this is the beginning of the story. This is the book of 1 Samuel, and you get to see who Samuel becomes. Her dropping him off is the beginning of the story, and so we have to take a couple minutes to talk about Hannah's legacy. Watch him grow. It says uh, Samuel grew in stature, meaning he got bigger, little kid to bigger kid, and he grew in favor with all the people and with the Lord. It also says he was a child in a linen ephod. What that means is you're at the tabernacle to worship and a five-year-old runs by in a priest outfit. And you go, what's up with that? Is it Halloween or what? You know, a child in a linen ephod, he grows in stature and his people get to know the kid. There's something in the hearts of the people that go, yes. And there's something in the heart of God that goes, yes. 
He grows in favor with the people and in favor with the Lord. Who is that? That's Samuel. That's Hannah's kid. Offered to God out of her pain and anguish and torment. That's Hannah's son. There's a day after he's gone to bed, he hears his name called, runs up, runs off to Eli the priest, you called me. It's not Eli's voice that he's hearing. It's God's voice that he's hearing. And God, the almighty God, begins to speak to the kid to give messages to the people. Who is that? That's Samuel. That's Hannah's son. A son that was given to the Lord and raised in that space because of her pain, difficulty, and emotional suffering. That's Hannah's son. Watch him grow. Now he is a man, no longer a child. And you will see Samuel using his adult mature voice to call the people to turn their hearts. There's a pivotal story where Samuel initiates a national revival. If you really want to follow the Lord, get rid of your idols. And he causes the hearts of the people to turn. That's Hannah's son. A son born and a son presented after her emotional exhaustion and deep pain and harassment and helplessness and suffering and misery. That's Hannah's son. Watch him as an elderly man. He is old. And he walks. He walks to the village of Bethlehem and to the house of Jesse. And he says, Jesse, I want you to line up all your sons. And he looks down the lineup and he goes, is this it? Is all of them? He says, no, you got one, the youngest, he's off in the field guarding the sheep. He goes, get him. Someone runs out to the shepherd's field and brings David back. And Hannah's son takes some oil and drips it on the head of David, anointing David as the second king of Israel. Hannah's son, presented to God from this dark place, being harassed, being helpless, and being miserable. Hannah's son, what I'm trying to say here is this, often our gracious God chooses to bring unspeakable good out of unspeakable pain. God is at work to bring something unspeakably good out of something unspeakably bad. That, that's what we learn from the story of Hannah and Samuel. This, this, this is something, not just something God did, this is something God does. My friends, it's the story of the cross. The story of the cross is a story of uh, harassment, mockery, naked, strung up, beaten up, something unspeakably bad, and from the cross, God brings something unspeakably good. My pardon, my sins covered, my forgiveness, my life from his death, my hope from his pain. The story of the cross is a story about God bringing something unspeakably good from something unspeakably bad. And if you are a believer, it's not just the story of the crucifixion, it's the story of the resurrection. When we celebrate Easter Sunday, the story of the resurrection, it's not just that Jesus came back to life, but his resurrection serves as a 
guarantee of your someday resurrection, of the resurrection of all things. At the end of time, at the end of our Bible, the voice from the throne that says, I am making everything new, and God restores and redeems. It's like he weaves together all of the broken parts to show the redemptive story that he was telling over time that often involved our suffering and our agony. That's the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. God using something unspeakably bad to create something unspeakably good and whole. Now, that deal about God could have kept my mom awake and didn't. A dozen or so years ago, I wrote this book uh, called The Land Between, and I opened the book by talking about waking up a November day in my seventh grade year uh, and learning that my mom had been uh, killed the night before. That's how I began the book. That's not how I end the book. I end the book with a conversation that took place on a trampoline just about 30 years ago. I think it was like 28 years ago. I was with my youngest son. He's now mid-30s. At the time, he was kindergarten age. It's like five years old. We're in the backyard. We're jumping on the trampoline. And Alex, Alex asked me, Dad, how did you meet Mom? Dad, how did you meet Mom? And I said, I met your mom in California when we were in high school. Told him how I met his mom. Question number two, was that before or after your mom died? I said, oh, that was after my mom died. When my mom died, I lived in Idaho that's where my mom died. And after my mom died, we moved to Michigan. And that's where your grandpa met Grandma Carolyn and married Grandma Carolyn, who is my second mom now. And then we moved to California. We're jumping on the trampoline in the backyard. I can see the wheels turning. And he goes, if your mom hadn't died, you wouldn't have moved to California. Went, yep, probably right. If your mom hadn't died, you wouldn't have met my mom. Uh, yep. And then out it came. If your mom hadn't died, I wouldn't be here. This conversation takes place as we're jumping on the trampoline. Now, I, I don't tell the story in any way to resolve all internal conflict you experience or some way to solve the mysteries of God and the mysteries of the universe. I just want to say that every once in a while, we might be given a glimpse of how God was at work through events that inevitably put in motion other events. So if you will uh, indulge me for just a minute, I want to read a few lines with which I closed this book. Our family tragedy set off a This is right after I tell the trampoline story. Our family tragedy set off a sequence of events that irreversibly set other events into motion. I have sometimes wondered if I would be serving the remarkable church I serve in the community I love if I have graduated from high school in Idaho without the detours through Michigan and California. Surely the children I would have had would not be these children that I treasure and adore. Whoever I would have wed would not have been their mother who has shared life and ministry with me at Ada Bible Church. God did not abandon us to our sorrow. 
I know this is more easily seen through the lens of time and healing, but I hope with all my heart that I can trust God when new heartache crashes into our lives. I hope that God's mercy in the past will give sustaining faith for the future, the end. God did not abandon us to our suffering. Glimpses like that from time to time about how the hand of God was at work to take something unspeakably painful and bring about intense good. Those glimpses just give our hope for the other times when we can't see. But for the time being, as we land today and as we land this series about breaking points, I just want one image to be in your mind, and it's his five-year-old running around the temple in a priest outfit. <laughs> and it's also a reminder of something else. Throughout the course of the years, I have met several women by the name of Hannah. I have yet to meet a Penina. <laughs> Can you trust that God might be at work even in your suffering. Are you willing to pour yourself out, all your frustration, all your complaint, all your anxiety, all your care, and see if he meets you in that uncomfortable, tragic suffering space? Can you come to a point of trust that our gracious God, who is wildly mysterious, often brings unspeakable good out of that which is unspeakably bad. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other campuses as we, uh, as we move into our week. Gracious God, we give thanks that we were able to be in each other's company and in your presence to open your word and to soak it in and to see you. We ask that you would move us, mold us, shape us, renew us, soften us, remind us that you hear. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who came for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.